Happy Independence Day, 1776. Who was, what were you doing in 1776? It's like those moments where you remember where you were, like 9-11, you know where you were, all this other stuff. Where were you on this day in 1776? Okay. Um, so they fired me. I don't know if you came last week, but I was the parking director. That was my new job here. And they actually fired me. Um, and it's not really my fault that people didn't understand that they were supposed to turn before they ran into Malia, uh, into that really small opening. So I'm glad that I guess they made it a little wider today, so it's a little more clear. Per Malia, pray for her. She gets out of the hospital soon. I'm just kidding. Okay. But anyways, they demoted me and made me a preacher, so here I am. You may want to fasten your seatbelts. I turned 69 years old um, this past May 1st, definitely not wanting to retire anytime soon. But, you know, as, as I've, I'm getting closer and closer to the finish line here on earth, you start thinking about that. I don't know what age that starts, but it, that's definitely kicked in for me. And I get closer, as I get closer and closer to that finish line, I've been thinking more and more about whether or not I'm storing or saving up enough finances in this life to last me until the next one. And economists say that we should save about eight to 10 times our salary if we want to be able to retire somewhat close to our current lifestyle. Um, but that's not an easy or realistic task for some people to achieve when so many are working really hard just to make ends meet every month. Approximately 60 to 70%, 60 to 70%, staggering number of Americans say they're living paycheck to paycheck and they're not putting anything away for emergencies or for retirement. And this reality can cause a lot of stress, not only about surviving right now, but especially about surviving in those latter years when it may, be, may not be possible to work any longer. So anyways, as we continue in our series on the Upside Down Kingdom, I'm going to talk about a secure investment path that works for any level of income. And uh, it's absolutely awesome if you're able to save money for the future. If you can, I highly re recommend that you do. But the reality is that most of the world doesn't have this luxury. I remember in seminary, one of my professors of theology saying, no matter what theology or what doctrine you come up with out of the Bible, it better be able to preach anywhere in the world or you have the wrong doctrine. And a lot of times we have very American-centric kinds of messages that we hear, but um, hopefully this one will be able to preach anywhere in the world. Um, the investment path that I'm going to talk about today will provide financial peace all the way to the end of your finish line without needing to take a special course on financial planning or even setting aside money each month for the future. Sound too good to be true? Well, it is. No, it's not. I'm, stay tuned for the next 30 minutes. So our current Upside Down Kingdom series, if you're visiting, we've been going through this series called the Upside Down Kingdom, the kind of the counterintuitive or countercultural um, kingdom of God. And we've been looking at the contrast between the systems of the world versus the systems of God, which are in total opposition of each other, and thus the title, the Upside Down Kingdom. And over the last five weeks, 
We started uh, with the contrast between control versus sacrifice, uh, approval versus favor. Brian did two weeks on fear versus bravery. And last week, Aaron did scarcity versus abundance. And today we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the contrast between what he calls treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. And our passage uh, is found in a section in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. So let's just jump right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover here. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. We'll start with verses 19 through 21, but I believe I'm going all the way through to verse 32. Here's what those verses say. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is as well. So right out of the chute, Jesus is talking here about the difference between very fragile, a, a very fragile investment path and a very secure investment path. And a good place to start, I think, before diving into these contrasts between these two paths is to focus on that last sentence which says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Because it's important to note that what Jesus is talking about here by our heart refers to our core identity, which is why that song was so appropriate. Uh, identity is made up of things like in our life that we hold dear, like our beliefs. That's why you're here today. Our personality, whether even if you are uh, an eight on the Enneagram, uh, our, our looks, for someone as good-looking as me, right? Our work, our, our politics, our hobbies, and all the other things that we invest ourselves, spelled S-E-L-F. Uh, and collectively, all these things contribute to who we are. And who we are strongly influences how we are going to show up in the world. We all have a core identity whether or not that identity is a healthy one or an unhealthy one. And the Bible uses the word heart. In Hebrew, it's the word lev. The Bible uses the word heart for the location of our identity. It's not your beating heart, right? It's the location of our, our identity, which is found somewhere in our inner being, that place within us that stores all of our identity information. Proverbs 27, 19 says, and this is about the relationship between our identity and our heart. It says, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. So, you know, you think about that. If you see your face being reflected on something like water or on a mirror, that reflection is not your real face, right? It's only a replicated image of your real face. But unlike like some of the make-believe movies and stories that you've seen where someone looks into the mirror and they see a completely different image of themselves, your reflected face can only mirror your real face. 
In the same way, our lives can only reflect our real heart. Because our lives are merely a reproduction of what's in our heart. Your heart on the inside is who you are on the outside. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. He's discussing this in Matthew chapter 15. He says, it's not what goes into someone's mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of someone's mouth that defiles them. And the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. So Jesus goes on to explain to them. And this is Matthew 15, verse 17 through 18. He says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out the body? Digestive biology 101, right here. Plain and simple. But he goes on and says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. He's using heart in this passage as a negative or unhealthy identity, but again, the word heart in this passage refers to who we are on the inside, and the teaching is really simple. Who we are in the inside informs what we do on the outside. If you don't like what you're doing on the outside, you will need to change, first change who you are on the inside because transformation is an inside job, plain and simple. Does this all make sense so far? I'm taking you on a little journey, so I want to make sure I'm not going to move forward until everyone's on board. Do I need to go back and explain anything? All right, no. We're small enough. We can do that this morning, right? And so with this identity context uh, of our passage in mind, we could paraphrase our passage this morning to say something like, who we are in the inside determines the kind of treasures that we're going to accumulate in this life. And this is exactly what Jesus means when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasures, those things that you invest in the most, are simply a reflection of what's in your heart. Now, there's so many contributing factors that make up our identity, but one important concept to understand that we can get from this passage is that whenever we go about establishing our core identities, those identities that we value the most, we need to consider investments that can't be lost or stolen. For instance... Your core identities might be something, your profile might be something like your role as a husband or a mom or an athlete or an engineer or a rock climber or a teacher, whatever. But what happens to you if for some reason any of these roles become lost or taken away from you? Maybe you get divorced or you lose a child or you sustain a permanent injury or you get fired. These are all real life experiences that happen to us on a regular basis and when they do, they can throw us into what's called an identity crisis because they're all fragile identities that are vulnerable to loss. Remember years ago, I met a woman in her 50s who in the same year became an empty nester and lost her husband to cancer. And she told me how she had recently gone to the supermarket and began to weep in the frozen food section because she couldn't figure out what kind of food to purchase for herself since her entire adult life was spent shopping for food that her family liked. 
She had no idea what she liked to eat. She had a fragile core identity and was having an identity crisis in the frozen food aisle. Our core identities, meaning those investments that we value the most, the ones that bubble up to the top, need to be built on things that cannot be lost or stolen. As believers in God, our highest core identity should be, and it came from the song we sang, what? That we are dearly loved, we're a dearly loved child of God. Something that absolutely cannot be lost or taken away. And that's why Rabbi Paul says in Romans uh, chapter, I want to say it's 8, 38 and 39. I didn't write down the references here. It says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation, I think that kind of just puts it all that there's nothing, right? We'll be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Jesus, our Lord. That's why Jesus is so careful to warn us in our main passage this morning. Do not store up treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves can break in and steal it from you. Instead, store up for yourselves in heaven... Treasures in heaven where moths and vermin can't destroy and thieves can't break in and take it from you. He's saying those who spend their lives investing in treasures on earth will have fragile identities. Because those treasures are vulnerable to loss. But for those who invest in treasures in heaven, they will have resilient identities. Because those treasures are secure both now and and forevermore. Now, I'll stop again. Are making sense? We all on the same path here? Okay. Now, fragile treasures on earth are pretty easy to describe. I named some because they are roles and possessions that we can't take away. Things like our cars and our houses and our bank accounts, our stock portfolios, our jobs, our hobbies, the various roles that we play in our relationships. Don't get me wrong, it's not the relationships that's bad. Relationships are awesome, okay? It's the roles that we take on in those relationships that can be fragile. And it's not that it's bad to invest yourself in any of those things I just listed or the ones I I didn't mention. It's just that they need to be way down on the list of the most important things to invest ourselves in. Like I have a stock portfolio, and I have to confess that in today's highly fragile financial market, I'm I'm tempted to check out the stock, how the stock market is doing, especially since, you know, you have an iPhone, you've got a stock app, and it's just a click away. And I, and I do it more than I'd like to admit. And I always have to be prioritizing this habit down to its proper lower identity shelf, because it can just carry me away. It can get up, way up to the top if I let it. I'm sure you, you, you do the same thing with your fragile treasures on earth. Why? Because they're susceptible to loss. That's, that's what's wrong with them, and it's not easy to define, I mean, it's easy to define what those fragile treasures are. It's not so easy to define what Jesus means by treasures in heaven, things that cannot be lost or stolen. And why are they called 
treasures in heaven. I mean, think about it. Just, just, just go down this little path with me, all right? Why are they called treasures in heaven? Is this some kind of heavenly retirement bank account that God keeps for us in the clouds? The cloud, so to speak? The original cloud. Where withdrawals can be made once we enter into eternity? Will we need some kind of heavenly currency in order to survive in eternity? Or worse, will some of us have more currency than others based on the number of successful transactions we make down here on earth? Does God have an app where we can check our daily balance? God forbid. Status? And financial class systems all go away once Messiah Yeshua returns to establish his messianic kingdom. In the future messianic kingdom, no one will eat extravagant food while others go to bed hungry. It'll never happen. No one will live in a mansion while others are homeless on the streets. It will never happen. In eternity, no one is desperately poor, but everyone is filthy rich, well, spiritually speaking. And if this is true, what does it mean then to invest in treasures in heaven? And what do we gain by making these kinds of investments? Well, for that... We need to put on our special connecting the dots glasses. (laughs) By the way, if you're new, grab my book called Connecting the Dots at the Visitor Table because I talk about this, why we put these on, Um, so that we can understand the proper Jewish context of this passage. Otherwise, if we don't have that Jewish context, we can come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations that will lead us down the wrong path, especially those that lead to a heavenly class system, which I've heard pastors preach about, sadly. And we're going to see this insight clearly. Oh, you missed it, huh? Because this fell out. I just bought these. I just had these remade because they're color. Is there a return policy for Etsy? I don't know. I've got to get this in because you can't. Well, I'll just hold it in. Can you see the difference between the two? Okay. Connecting the dots, Jewish and Christian. Okay. You get that. Somebody want to work on this? Oh, it popped in. Okay. And this this is going to be really clear in the next set of uh, verses in our passage this morning from Matthew 6. This is verse 22 and 24. Here it is. It's kind of a strange insert without having the context. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. Okay. But if if your eyes are healthy, if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, well, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, 
or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, keep in mind that Jesus has already identified the heart as the source of our identity, so he's not giving us a second identity source here. So what kind of insight about treasures can we gain from this almost, I don't know, mystical, cryptic teaching on the eyes? What do healthy and unhealthy eyes have to do with any of this? Ones that make our whole body either full of light or our whole body full of darkness. And just to make it more strange, Jesus says, if the light within you is is darkness, well, how great is that darkness? It's like, what? What's he talking about here, okay? Well, you've probably heard the expression, the eyes are the window of the soul, right? Everyone's heard that phrase, that your eyes are your window to your soul. And this expression basically means that you can actually tell a lot about a person, what a person is like uh, on the inside by peering into that person's eyes on the outside. That expression probably originated from this text. I did not look up the etymology to, to, to see if that's true, but I can imagine that's where it came from. And this insight became more apparent Don't you think in the last year and a half, due to the order to wear masks in public and the eyes were the only feature on someone's face that we could see? I mean, haven't we all become professional eye readers? It's really been amazing. I'm sure you've had this experience. I mean, I have met new people in the last year and a half, and I only saw them with a mask. And recently, I see them without a mask. And it's, it's, it's funny because you, you, you kind of imagine what they look like. Most of the time, they don't look like anything like I imagined. But we only could stare into somebody's eyes. Jesus has something very specific in mind here about the difference between healthy and unhealthy eyes. The original Greek words in this passage, they don't really mean healthy and unhealthy But they're not bad paraphrases of what they do mean, okay? A closer paraphrase would be good eyes and bad eyes, which is likely what Jewish, Hebrew-speaking Jesus actually said. Because the Jewish sages, even before Jesus' time, often spoke about a person who had, in Hebrew, it's pronounced ein tovah, Hebrew for good eyes, Versus a person who had ein ra'a, Hebrew for bad eyes. And these were popular idioms within Judaism during biblical times. And whenever they were used in the context of things like possessions and finances, a person with ein tovah, good eyes, was considered a generous person. While a person with ein ra'a, bad eyes, was considered a stingy person. And more specifically, a person with ein tovah, a good eye, is what the Bible calls a zadik. We've used that word many times here at Cornerstone. A zadik zadik is a righteous, it comes from the word righteous, but but it's most often translated justice. We think of righteous. Christianity kind of thinks of righteousness, not smoking cigarettes behind the barn. And maybe it includes that. 
but it usually refers to justice in the world. A tzaddik is a righteous, justice-minded person who doesn't turn a blind eye toward those who are less fortunate in the world and are instead generous and open-handed with their resources, their time, their talents, and their treasures. Well, a person with ein ra'ah, a bad eye, is what the Bible calls an aval, an unrighteous, unjust person who habitually turns a blind eye toward those who are less fortunate in the world and is stingy and close-handed with their resources. And just so we don't miss that this good eye idiom is tied to our possessions and our finances, so we know what the context is. Jesus makes it clear by finishing this section saying, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The actual word for money is the word mammon, and materialism is in, in general, would be a much better translation than money because money is so narrow. Materialism, being materialistic. You can't serve both God and materialism, which are just synonyms for what he said earlier. Treasures in heaven is serving God. Treasures on earth is serving materialism. And don't miss this important contrast because Jesus is saying that if you have a ein tova, a good, generous, open-handed eye, then you will be a slave to God. Why? Because generosity is a fundamental feature of God's heart. But if you have a ein ra'ah, a stingy, close-handed eye, then you will be slaves to materialism because stinginess is a fundamental feature of materialism's heart. We cannot give enough when it comes to reflecting God's heart. You will never be able to outgive God's generosity. And we cannot accumulate enough when it comes to reflecting materialism's heart. Do you see the fundamental difference between these two investments? And notice how Jesus says it's impossible to juggle the two. There's no allowance for percentage relationships here, like 60% heavenly, 40% earthly, or vice versa. Because Jesus is talking here about core identity issues. Who we are on the inside determines what we do on the outside. And so you can't love both. We either, we're either slaves to God's generosity or we're slaves to the world's materialism. By the way, I'm, I'm really proud to be part of such a generous church like Cornerstone. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, honestly. I mean, I'm convicted by all this stuff, but we have such a generous church. And I'm not just talking about money, although I'm going to mention money here, because this is, this is just a, it's, it's an identity issue. It's about just being open-handed with everything. 
And I'm amazed at how open-handed you all are with your time and your talent and your, your treasures. I'm blown away each year. Let's say like at Christmas time when we do our Advent giving, we give away $40,000 to four organizations that serve desperate people in the world. How many churches do that year after year after year? But that's just a drop in the bucket of what your generosity accomplishes here. Because you've given so much during COVID to our COVID relief fund, we've been able to help anyone here at the church who found themselves in a desperate situation over the last year and a half. And not just here at the church, we're able to give large financial gifts to a, a couple restaurants who needed money to, to keep their, their employees uh, Working, We gave frontline workers thousands of face masks early on in the pandemic when it was virtually impossible to find them and very expensive to buy them. A year ago, when our partners in Uganda told us that people in the region were on the verge of starvation, you all rallied to supply large amounts of food to get them through. Uganda just shut down again a couple weeks ago due to COVID. And once again, the region is on the verge of starvation and people are dying due to, to, to a lack of oxygen tanks. And because we still have a reserve of COVID funds, we along with a couple other churches um, just sent enough resources to supply around 10,000 people. I mean, I talked to you about how most of the world lives paycheck to paycheck. Well, in the people in the region in Uganda rely on daily crops, they live from meal to meal. And so when the wheels come off, they're, they're just days away from starvation. We just received news from Pastor David in Uganda just, just, just on Wednesday. He said, out of the $17,000 that we were able to send, they were able to buy 21,500 kilograms of flour 3,100 kilograms of beans, that he spelled B-E-E-N-S. Because the beans are for human beans. Okay, even that's wrong spelling, huh? Okay. 100 boxes of bars of soap. Just because they're so worried about hygiene. And 50 cartons of salt. If you want to help some more, you know, you can go to our giving page, click on, go to our, our um, push pay area, pull down the areas where you can give and just give to COVID relief. And we'll, we'll push all of that 100%. We don't take anything out of the, the money you give for relief stuff. It just 100% goes to help the people. That little food pantry, have you noticed it out front that we have a, a mini food pantry that we stock food? It's being used continually by desperate people. I mean, we're, we're restocking it every week. And um, by the way, we still need more people to help manage that. We need some generous, open-handed people with their time to help us keep that stocked every week. Per Anka Corbin is doing it on her own. It's her idea, her brainstorm. Steve Ward in the back there doing the slides built that box. And uh, it's amazing. You wouldn't think that in the city of Boulder you have desperate people, but you do. Trust me. Just email me if you can help with that. All these things are what Jesus calls treasures in heaven. So what exactly is a treasure in heaven? Are you ready? Anything that reflects the heart of God. 
A treasure in heaven is doing something on behalf of the heart of God. It's being generous and open-handed, especially to those who are less fortunate than us. It's being a zadik, a righteous person of just, someone of justice, someone who has an ein tova, a good eye, who doesn't turn a blind eye toward those who are less fortunate in the world, who are instead generous and open-handed with their time and their talents and their treasures. Helping to ensure, okay, this is the most important part, that every person on this planet is cared for in a way that represents God's grace and kindness and justice. We have no greater calling than to represent God's heart on this planet. And I got to tell you, in this highly polarized world we live in today, politicized especially, so many believers are way off track in how they're investing their time, treasures, and talents. We are not to have a blind eye towards those who are desperate. And the people that do this, they are rich in God. This is why 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Okay, it's not the wealth that's bad, right? It's the hope in wealth that's bad, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Okay, so hopefully you're still tracking with me. Let's quickly finish up uh, what hinders our ability to do this, which is the very next set of verses, verses 25 through 34, which says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first. Remember those higher identity priorities and values. Seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, right? And his righteousness, not smoking cigarettes behind the bar, his generosity, especially to those who are in trouble on this planet. And what will happen? All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What is it that typically hinders our ability to be generous and open-handed? Worry. Fear. 
worrying that we'll, we won't have enough to make it each day or each week or each year or each lifetime. If you didn't hear Aaron's message last week, go back. Abundance versus scarcity and listen to the generosity of God in that message. Jesus says that worrying about our survival is generosity's greatest buzz killer because you will invest your time in things to satisfy your worry. And you'll become a slave to materialism where enough is never enough. Jesus gives us two examples from nature. The splendor of the lilies of the field, symbolic of our clothing, our basic needs, right? He's talking about basic needs. The birds, the seeds that the birds of the air get, symbolic of our food, clothing, food and clothing. He didn't mention shelter, but that's, you can take all the basic necessities that we need. And this illustration is given by Jesus to demonstrate that if God cares so much about meeting those needs, how much more will he meet your needs? And so to those of us who worry about having enough, and especially to those of us who invest so much of our time and energy trying to build up fragile treasures on earth, he says, chill out. I've got your back. Instead of gobbling all your time worrying about surviving, try pursuing God's kingdom and his righteousness. Try pursuing God's heart for love and justice for everyone on this planet and for all the things you are worrying about. They'll just simply fall into place. Just like everything fell into place for our hungry Ugandan friends. People thousands of miles away fed them. Only God can pull that off. This, my friends, is God's secure investment path to financial peace. Your identity, who you are, your life become a reflection of who God is. That's the path. That's the secure path. Um, let me give you one verse just to med- meditate on in the worship team. Oh, actually, the worship team, you come out when the video is played. forgot we settled that. But here's the verse, okay? I'd like you just to just put everything down. It's just Psalm 139. 23 and 24. It's the last two verses in Psalm 139. You can remember it that way. It says this. Search me, O God. Search me, O God. He doesn't mean to pat you down. Right? He's talking about going on the inside. Look on the inside. Look into my heart, God. Know my heart. Search me and know my heart. Know who I am. Test me and, and, and know my anxious thoughts. Because we all have them. I mean, you don't ever get to where you don't have anxious thoughts, okay? And see if there's any offensive way in me. You know, another way to translate that would be to see if I have an ein ra'ah, a bad eye. 
Sometimes it's translated wicked eye. And lead me in the way everlasting, the path, that secure financial path that leads to financial peace. Just let that passage soak in. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about what I've just said. And watch this video. It's only two minutes long. On generosity, generosity is one of our nine elements, our values here at Cornerstone. It's a big deal to us, as are the other eight. And uh, we made this in 2013. It's just as true today as it was back in 2013, as it was back 2,000 years ago, as it was on day one of creation. Here it is. There is a story found in all four of the Gospels. Jesus feeds a large crowd that has come to hear him teach with one simple meal. A moment of sacrifice. A miracle of provision. Ignited not by power or wealth, but by the generosity of a child. The teachings of Jesus reveal that generosity is at the core to a holy, healthy life. It is God's favorite tool. He uses it to care for people. That is why it is truly better to give than to receive. But many of us do not live this way. We're consumed with hanging on to what we have. We obsess with what we do not have. Do we really not have enough? How can this be in a land of storage units, three-car garages, and Black Friday? He taught us that everything we have is a gift, a gift from God. And these gifts, like that boy's lunch, are to be given to a world that is in need. We give of our time and serve our neighbors. We give of our possessions and bless those in need. We give of our talents and become a part of the solution. As we do this, we partner with the generosity of God. God's generosity changes us. Empty hearts and scarce lives are made abundant, and generosity becomes contagious.